Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, and my guest for this show is Kurt Fitzpatrick of uh, A Lifetime of Hallmark. He's been doing a lot of Fringe live stream, and that's up and running again, I think, uh, as of the time we're recording this. This episode, we're recording in 2020, but I think is going to be released in 2021. This is your third, third appearance on the show. Each time we seem to be focusing on a specific actor. The first show was Al Pacino, second show Paul Newman, and then you uh, were interested in in looking at the career of Steve McQueen. Yes. Yeah. And I've become and I as a result I've become a big Steve McQueen fan. I had not seen a lot of his work before. I hadn't really either. I'm calling this Steve McQueen movie star as opposed to acting masterclass. Maybe controversially or, or not controversially, I, I don't know how much how great an actor he is. I think he's okay, but I think he was a movie star first and an actor second. There may be one role where we talk about that he disappears a little bit more, but he's one of these guys where you know that you're watching Steve McQueen from film to film, yet he's got that movie star charisma that you don't really care that much. Right. At least that's what I found with the six that we're watching. Yeah, I don't really want him to be anybody else. Just be Steve McQueen, mm -hmm. because that's awesome. Yeah. That's... <laughs> he, yeah, you get why he was such a beloved movie star and action star. Uh, but he does he did cover a fair number of genre, and it, like even among the six that we're looking at, we have a B horror movie, we have a western, we have a war film, we have kind of a gambler film, and then we also have two movies which could be considered prison movies as well. They they all can be put under like a category, but he was uh, very good at genre cinema. And I think his influence was felt like, I mean, I think people like, you know, Quentin Tarantino watched his movies. I I sense particularly in, in one of Tarantino's films, huge influence. I, I, I kind of get it. And I, I just really hadn't watched much of his stuff. And these movies, we have one from the 50s, uh, four from the 60s, and one from the 70s. And so I guess it was a little bit before my time. But I think it was kind of because we watched Towering Inferno, we kind of got the idea to look at some more Steve McQueen movies. Yeah, that was in 74, I think. So that was actually, that was after all these movies. Yeah, actually, yeah, it, it is uh, the, the newer movies. Yeah. There's a lot of actors that we'll be talking about more than once. Robert Vaughn, who was in The Towering Inferno, appears in a couple of these movies. Uh, Charles Bronson appears in a couple of these movies. A lot of these actors, the same actors ended up in some of these ensemble pieces that, that we're looking at. And on, on the whole, I don't know how they got along on set, but it seemed to work well when you had all these kind of big time macho movie actors and you put them together in a western like the magnificent seven or in a prisoner of war movie like the great escape so i i it was it surprised me how many times mcqueen was part of an ensemble and then there were the films that were definitely steve mcqueen starring vehicles i mean i, I don't know i don't know if he how comfortable he was sharing the spotlight like that i i guess I would assume that he was fairly comfortable because even up to, as as we mentioned, Towering Inferno, even up to then, mm -hmm. 1974, he was still part of an ensemble. So. But he's usually the top of the leads. I think the, the lowest he has here is, I think he had third billing in The Magnificent Seven in 1960 behind uh, Yul Brenner and Yuri Wallach. No, no. But it might, mind you, it was 1960, and I'm not sure if Steve McQueen was Steve McQueen at that point. 
And yet, and yet he was. Yet he was. Queen, as we could yeah. say. In one of the movies, I'll go through the movies we're going to review, but in one of the movies, he's actually listed as Stephen McQueen for uh, The Blob. So we're looking at, uh, and it's interesting, several of these movies have been remade as well, and that might be a factor. I haven't seen the remakes of all of them. Oh, yeah, that's right. Just about The the Blob was remade, Papillon, and yeah. Magnificent yeah. Seven, yeah. right? All those were remade. Yeah, so we have The Blob from 1958 that we're going to review, then The Magnificent Seven from 1960. We're going to take a look at The Great Escape from 1963. 1965 is The Cincinnati Kid. Above a shout-out to director Norman Jewison, Canadian. And you mentioned that you, you've been in you like him as a director and you we, we very nearly reviewed uh injustice for all on the al pacino show so yes and i think i did watch that movie um yeah and i've also seen i'm a big fan of fiddler on the roof he did the yeah. movie version of that and he did the movie version of jesus christ superstar also which is great he's such an eclectic filmography i mean uh, in the heat of the nights in there moonstruck oh, yeah. There. yeah the the hurricane yeah it's it's kind of an interesting story, and and this one's you know quite different than any of the rest of them. But it does kind of his touches are definitely in in the Cincinnati Kid. This is the one that I knew least about going in. Yeah, uh, uh, myself as well. I had never heard of this movie. 1968's Bullet, pretty famous film. That's definitely Steve McQueen is the star of that film. Uh, then we're end end off with 1973's Papillon, uh, where he shares the screen for a considerable amount of time with the great method actor Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman. And it's interesting seeing the two together uh, in that film. So anything else uh, you'd like to say? I want, I did mention um, A Lifetime of Hallmark is your podcast and you have weekly episodes, I believe. Uh, I think so. We uh, That's what we try to do. We uh, do our best to put out an episode, episode every week. And I've been starting to listen to it. Who knows, maybe someday I'll make a, an appearance on the show. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yes, we're making that happen. It's just we have, right. to get we have to get everybody's uh, schedule together for four people to get the yeah. schedule together. But we'll, Which, we'll make it happen. 2020 seems to be an impossibility to get four people's schedules together. But we will do it. Yeah, it'll, it'll happen. All right, let's review some movies. Dave, Doc Hallen's been killed. Doc Hallen, what happened? It's over at his place. you got to come now. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. But it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It... Every one of you watching this screen, look out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. 
How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. in 1958 concerns a teenage couple that are making out and they happen to notice in the sky this falling star or this meteor that falls down and they decide to go chasing after it but by the time they actually get to where it's landed they've uh, found a old man in great distress seems to have gelatin all over his uh, hands and is in great pain uh, and they decide to take him to the local doctor and from there, just all hell breaks loose. That's the general synopsis of The Blob from 1958. Uh, it was remade by uh, director Chuck Russell, and it was the, the script for the remake was co-written by Frank Darabont of Shawshank Redemption fame. I'm an enormous fan of the remake. In fairness, I came to the remake first before seeing the original here. And you can tell this was early on in Steve McQueen's career. This is the one where he's referred to as Stephen McQueen. But you kind of get watching the movie why he became a movie star after this. He, he does a good job of anchoring this I, I have to call it a B-movie, this this B-monster movie, which was one of many in the 1950s that were very popular. So what are your thoughts on The Blob? Well, first of all, I wanted to point out the old man at the beginning of the movie is, is an actor named Olin Howland. Yes. He was played a he was a carpetbagger in Gone with the Wind. He had an enormous, enormous career. He died like a couple years after this movie. But uh, the Blob, I'm fresh from the Blob. I'm still sticky. I <laughs> just finished watching the Blob. Although I, th I believe I saw this movie when I was a kid, and um, the, the the Blob was apparently a huge hit at the time. It made I believe it grossed four million dollars, which was a whole lot of money in 1958. And and uh, I'm a little surprised it was such a big hit because there's there's not a whole lot of blob. You don't see a whole lot of blob. There's a lot of uh, exposition in this movie. A lot yeah. of talking. <laughs> There's a lot of like the cops don't believe them, which is we've we see that I'm sure this I don't know if this is the first movie that did that, but of course there's been many like horror movies after that that had that. Um, I, what's interesting about Steve McQueen is he's a bit he's he's kind of like he he's ageless, but he doesn't he never looks young. <laughs> like he's he's supposed to be a teenager in this movie, yeah. and he looks in in real life I believe he was 28. He looks like he's 43. The the police look younger. Than Yes. and him in this movie and like his hey girl, kid you know his girlfriend too she's got little bags in her eyes if you notice and, and so oh, i was okay. i was like oh maybe, maybe they're a little bit older and then the teenagers come in later in the film but no they they <laughs> They're high school kids. They're the teenagers. Yeah, uh, it was uh, it was cool. I, I appreciate that it was in Pennsylvania because I was born in the state of Pennsylvania. And the the Downingtown Diner is apparently still around, and the and the actual basement where they <laughs> when they when they go to the basement of the diner that was actually the that was the the real life basement you could you could still visit that but um yeah the blob was i was a little disappointed i thought it was going to be a little um i i, I wanted more blob and there was a lot of it i think you get more blob if you haven't seen the 1988 remake there's a lot more blob in there and a lot more texture uh, and detail to the story and they add in some other some other elements involving the government which is uh just kind of representing a different time from the 50s to the 80s, for sure. You know, you mentioned those those police officers, and of course they don't believe them because they're teenagers and they think that they're playing pranks or whatever on uh, on the officers to make them look ridiculous. They actually took the time to develop 
some characters that they weren't just like two-dimensional police officers there's there's the police officer who's a little bit more reasonable that you know will will just talk things out and say okay stop driving like an idiot that kind of thing but then there's the one who is a bit more of a hard ass and he has a little bit of a backstory that apparently his wife had been killed by uh, teenagers joyriding or something like that so he thinks all of the kids in town are conspiring to make the police look ridiculous. And um, I kind of like that, that they weren't just, all of them were exactly the same, that there was a little bit of variation. Then there's that other guy who just likes uh, playing chess with on a, a CV radio with some other police officer in another town. Oh, he does play with other people? Because I didn't hear that, that that wasn't very clear. I thought he just kind of played with himself. <laughs> no, when he when they leave the police station, the other two leave the police station, and he kind of looks around guiltily. He takes out his his board, and then he tunes in. And I thought, oh, is he is he trying to to let like the feds know about what's going on or something? But then, at, no, he's playing chess with somebody else, I, presumably in another town or something like that. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah and the, one of the one of the police had a had a war history. He was saying that the, the uh, kids were probably picking on him because of war history. I assume. Yeah. Korean War. That's the guy who wants... There's something where his spouse had died because of teenagers. So he was the one who is really hard on them and just doesn't doesn't believe anything that Steve McQueen says when he's frantically trying to warn everybody in the town. And I mean, I could see why this movie did well. I mean, the teenagers become the heroes because all the kids in town kind of get together. They find some way to wake up the town and alert them that this is happening. And and so it, I think it works for what it is. But it's not it's not very good. No, but it's interesting. The influence is very obvious. This this movie is obviously influential about influenced movies like Jaws. I mean, I think I think it influenced movies that were much better than this, including the remake. <laughs> the remake is a really good movie, actually, even though it's a it's a B horror remake from the eighties. So a couple like. It, it's a it's a tough battle for me to begin with. The fact that I just love the 1988 version of the Blob is something else. So maybe because I liked the remake, I was a little bit more excited to see the original, and I didn't have overly high expectations. Even though I was kind of like Steve McQueen was in the Blob, like I didn't realize that he was in the Blob until you mentioned the Blob would be one of the options that we could have for this show. And then when I saw it, I was like, okay, I, it makes sense. This is a few years before he becomes uh, a genuine movie star, and this is just a, a guy in his twenties trying to get some acting work, and he gets a, a lead role in this film, even though he has to play a character who's eleven years uh, younger than he is yeah and i read he was offered uh three thousand dollars or he could get uh ten percent of the gross or of the movie and he took the three thousand not knowing the not expecting the movie is going to make four million <laughs> well why um, would you expect yeah. it i mean i uh, guess you wouldn't I, I i remember reading or hearing that the people were working on the creature the creature of the black lagoon like these people were embarrassed to tell people what they were working on <laughs> <laughs> Those movies are big now. People will watch them. I mean, they're they, they they've come back in Blu-ray collections and that kind of thing. And yeah, who knew? There's also yeah. a sequel to The Blob. Uh, I think it's 1972. Is directed by Larry Hagman, which yeah, is, that's uh, right. Odd. So beware of the Blob. Something like that. And they yeah. and the way they um when they put the movie out on VHS, I guess years later they. Uh, they said it was uh, the movie that J. The, it was like the movie that Jr. shot or something.
something like that, as opposed to who shot Jr. It was like what, no, what Jr. shot? <laughs> like boy, well, that's, that's like straws on that one. I don't know how Larry Hagman but, got involved in a, a blob in 1972, but good. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, many years off from Dallas, I guess, and so yeah. he was looking for a job too, and I guess he directed he, the. <laughs> He was enough of a figure, I guess, in as a character actor in enough movies that maybe maybe he was thinking, okay, Ed, you know, the movie career is kind of where it is. Maybe I, I take up directing, and maybe that's what I do for the next phase of my yeah. career. The entertainment industry is very strange. There's also a message in this movie um, that is it predates uh, global warming. Because at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, they freeze the blob with a bunch of like fire extinguishers. Not fire extinguishers, but like, I guess that's what they were. Yeah. They were like, fire extinguishers would, yeah, because the cold is the only, is the kryptonite for the blob. Yeah. So they, and then they bring, and then they, the the plan is to bring the blob to, to, uh, to the Arctic. And Steve McQueen says, well, as long as the Arctic stays stays cold. And that's the last line in the movie. Yeah, I, I, I had noted that as well. I think at that time, it was just a throwaway line to end the film. Little did they know how important that idea would be in 2020 when uh, yeah. there's the possibility that maybe the blob will come back and get it as, back, as, yes. as an extra <laughs> kicker when uh, climate uh, climate change takes its full effect here in global I warming. Yeah. It's a big risk. Al Gore has been warning us that the blob could come back. Yes. So it's one of yeah. many, many issues here. Yeah, it was it was kind of, yeah, they, they, they parachuted the blob into uh, the, the Arctic. I don't know how they kept it cold. I guess they put it in a freezer and flew up to the Arctic, and that's I'd like to see that movie how they how they transported the blob from Downingtown, Pennsylvania, to the Arctic. <laughs> you have the full resources of uh, of the federal government and the military. There's ways that they can make make things oh, like that. Happen. But imagine like all the red tape and all that because you can't just transport a blob into the Arctic. <laughs> There's got to be some kind of legalities there. Well, now, but I, I don't know. Maybe things are a little bit looser in the Eisenhower years. I, I'm not. I'm not positive. Maybe. Uh, did, did Did you notice this is the thing that distracted me while watching the movie? And maybe it was low budget. Maybe I shouldn't be <laughs> this critical. But just randomly, it didn't matter what the location was. All of a sudden, they would have a shot with a black background and you would just see the actors reacting like maybe they'd have a car or steve mcqueen and it didn't really matter where they were they could be they could be outside they could be at the police station they could be uh, in a store but it would be the same black background i think that was just they shot that bit in a studio and they were able to get like all kinds of shots with the same background did you notice that no, I didn't. So I didn't did so much notice that. I, I I did notice that a lot of time there were there were reaction shots, and I could just imagine like the director yelling at Steve, "Be scared!" And uh, and I the other, but the one thing budget wise, I noticed there seemed to be a lot of looping, a lot of like audio looping. Like whenever somebody would turn their head and you couldn't see the see their face, mm-hmm. it was some kind of uh, dialogue. Seemed like it was it was looped over it. But that's pretty much the extent of it. I mean. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, it's a block. One hour, twenty minutes, maybe a little bit more than that. If you don't have high expectations, I think it will be fine. But we're going to be talking about some pretty remarkable films here, and maybe, unfortunately, the Blob is a little bit out of its 
class here with this well, group six Steve, Steve McQueen movies. Well, we were supposed to watch the Thomas Crown Affair, and I couldn't get access to that. So I said, well, let's watch The Blob instead. And yeah. It, it added a variety to the show, at least. <laughs> yeah, we need, yeah, we need a little, little, little variety because there, there were too many really good movies on this list. So The Blob. But I don't know. I was thinking The Blob might be really good, too, on its own. But it was it, it was all right. This was a good I, I movie. I liked it. I don't want to be too yeah. hard on The Blob. Well, the blob is I I but, it was a I think it was a good movie. It's first of all, as far as these like genre B movies that have been made over the years, it's probably on the higher end of those. Yeah. I, I, what I guess what I'm saying is on the higher end of bad movies. <laughs> uh, but it, if this was like a fun movie that would play on like a Saturday afternoon where there would be like a Dracula character would, would be hosting like now for the movie they're going to show the blob. And, you know, it would be you know it's an above average movie. Like a, a big aspect of this film is that they've a lot of the kids are at the movie theater in the town at the Midnight Spook Show watching some old Bela Lugosi film. And this would be the exact type of movie that would be perfect for that Midnight Spook Show in 1958 and 1959. And I think they would fill up the theater with, with kids. And, you know, it would be scary enough for for them to, you know, bring their dates exactly as, as shown in the film. So I think that's maybe what they were going for here. And I think if that's what it was going for, it was successful. So I don't want to be too hard on it. But it was, this was kind of one of the last ones I watched in the, in the group here. And so when we're dealing some with some other movies that are quite a bit heavier and quite a bit bigger in nature and just had a little bit more polish to them i think it's it's kind of tough for this version of the blob to be able to uh compete with some of the other films we're talking about seven 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 the magnificent seven they were only seven, but they fought like seven hundred. Bring the kind of justice that would last. She's afraid of me, you, him, all of us. Farmers. Their families told them we'd rape them. i 
talking about remakes and the magnificent seven in 1960 is actually a remake of kurosawa's seven samurai which uh spoilers for my review here but seven samurai is the better of the two films but the magnificent seven is no doubt a classic and instead of samurais we're taking a look at western set in mexico and we have this village where these bandits come in and steal the crops and steal all the valuables from this town and they know they're going to do this again and so the town they aim to hire maybe one or two gunfighters to help them out and they ended up with seven gunfighters the magnificent seven who come into the town and try to train the people how to defend themselves and are there when this bandit shows up this is one that has a, a big ensemble cast steve mcqueen kind of being like kind of the number two to, to joel brenner and eli wallach playing a villain as he did in in most westerns you may want to comment on this in a moment here but i i, I have another film one of these days uh, i'm going to be reviewing the good the bad and the ugly where eli wallach played the ugly and now i don't think a new york jewish method actor would be playing a mexican villain but that seemed to be kind of how, how things went uh, at this particular time here. So that was a, unfortunately one of my early notes. Uh, I wasn't bad at it necessarily, but it was, it's just kind of a factor in the film. So what do you think of The Magnificent Seven? I thought it was great. Uh, just as I think that Steve McQueen is badass, I think Charles Bronson is badass. I want to see more Charles Bronson. He was very good in it. Yeah. Yes, they were, they were very good. I thought all, all the characters were very strong. Um, some of these characters, they could have had their own movie. There could have been even more. There was Robert Vaughn's character and getting into him. What, what, what was his thing again? He was, yeah, he was like, what was he? Was he was like, was he kind of, like, was he like hiding from somebody? He ran away. I think he, the idea he was a deserter during the Civil War. Oh, okay. And then, um, who are the other seven? Um, I'm trying to think who the other one was. Coburn is in there. Coburn, yeah, yeah. He, he's the most accurate shot and he's accurate with the knife, but he, he kind of sleeps all the time. Yeah. And then there's, and there's another one who seems to be in it for nefarious purposes. Like he's hoping that there's, that there's jewels and gold yeah. there. And it doesn't really go, doesn't really go where we want it to go. Like we don't, it's, it's almost like I don't get enough of these characters, but they just, they develop as much as they can. Brad Dexter played Harry Luck, I think. Okay. Yeah. There were a yeah. few actors. I didn't, um, there's some who made, were big, big stars, and then others that were in this and are kind of known for this. Like, there's the uh, the young guy as well, who is desperate to be part of this group, but then he gets a little bit humiliated by Yul Brenner, and then he gets has a temper tantrum, and then he starts following them around until they accept him. Yeah, I didn't recognize him. Uh, Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner's another actor I really haven't seen a whole lot of before. I haven't. I never saw the. I never saw the King and I. I, th I believe I've seen him in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, he would be in a lot of those biblical epics, and yeah, I think he showed up in the odd western here or there. I I'm not sure. Like he he is the leader, he is the main the main guy, the star of the movie, no doubt about it. I don't know how 
how great an actor he is. Maybe like in a song and dance type of thing. He's he's good. I, I did, what, it didn't impress me that much his performance. Whereas some some other actors, and it was inter- I watched this right after The Great Escape, and a lot of the same actors are in both. But what struck me is some of the actors that I have problems with in The Great Escape are in roles which are much better in and much better suited to in this film. And you mentioned Charles Bronson and also uh, I think uh, James Colburn. Both do quite a nice job in their roles, but Bronson in particular was good. Like Bronson's a guy, I think, you know, his, his career role is Death Wish, right? I think if you cast him in the right role, then he's going to give you what he can do. And within what he can do, it's amazingly strong. I think when he's asked to do something which is out of that box of his ability, then it could be a bit of a train wreck. I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but I remember growing up in the 80s, I remember I never saw any of the Death Wish movies, but I know there was like Death Wish 4 and 5. It just kind of went on and on. Then I think he did some of those canon movies. But yeah, uh, as far as Eli Wallach, he he was, I thought he was very good. I didn't, I didn't know it was him at first. I was like, oh, that's that's Eli Wallach. And I, yeah, I, I think you're correct. I don't think that they would hire Eli Wallach today or an eli wallach type yeah <laughs> is eli wallach still alive i'm not, I'm not sure no, he's, yeah, i think he not that long ago he passed away but where i'm a little bit mixed up about with his performance in this and maybe a little bit more so in the good the bad and the ugly not to get into a review of the good the bad and the ugly here Which um, seeing, actually. but he like he's a method acting guy right like he's he's an actor studio he, he's one of those guys right am i mistaken in that Oh, that sounds correct. I think yeah. so. Yeah. So I I, it seems to me that he puts, this is a little bit more of an outside in performance. He gets the Mexican dialect and the costume and he plays it really, really big and cartoonish in these villainous roles. And it doesn't strike me as being kind of a, a Stanislavski type of approach to uh playing a character in in these roles this one is a little i i would i would argue he's better in this than he is in the good and the the good the bad and the ugly i but i i still found it like kind of a bit big and a bit distracting and a bit showy okay yeah i i don't know i thought it i thought it worked mm. uh for this movie. i mean it's a type the movie itself is slightly over the top i think and it just it could kind of work for me it's kind of the have, have you seen seven seven no i have not no this is Here's like the that. Reader's Digest version of Seven. Okay. Well, I should see that. Yeah. I also didn't see yeah. the remake. I know there was a remake with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. I've not seen that either. Yeah. I haven't, I I haven't seen that. And I didn't hear much about it beyond the fact that it exists. And I don't know. I, I, that, it's fine that they want to remake all these movies. I, I don't know. Maybe this one's less of an issue than a, a remake of one of the ones we're going to talk about later. But I, I'm going to come across negative with some of these movies yet i did like them okay and i the main seven if we're going to be comparing it to the great escape i was fighting the great escape more than i was fighting the magnificent seven which surprised me a little bit fighting I, i mean i was writing a lot more notes about about problems I had along the way with the oh, okay. film. This one I was able to enjoy a lot more, and I was okay. able to rely yeah. on the fact that, you know, I don't think anybody, Eli Wallach plays it big, but I'm not sure anybody was miscast. I think everybody kind of served their role. Steve McQueen doesn't do a, 
a whole lot of he isn't really the hero he's more the assistant to the hero in the film and he's a very good fighter and all of that but I, i'm not sure like as far as you know featuring steve mcqueen that this is one where i'm walking away going whoa that was steve mcqueen's film this this felt like a real ensemble effort and yeah. some, i think bronson was maybe gave the best performance in the film i I really appreciate this one scene in it because I didn't know this. Uh, I was a big fan, as many people were, of the show Breaking Bad. And yeah. there's that, that scene where he says, uh, say my name. And the guy says, Heisenberg. He says, You're goddamn right. Well, it looks like that was influenced by the Magnificent Seven because in uh, Charles Bronson's character, his, his like dying scene, the kids are near him. And he says, what's my name? Say my name. And they say his name. And he goes, you're damn right. So I was like, oh, man. Breaking Bad. They did an homage to the Magnificent Seven. I didn't know that. And Vince Gilligan is a, like a very, like he knows his film history. I think he's a very well-read man as well. And again, like Breaking Bad was a border town type of a series, as oh, yeah. is Better Call Saul. And, and so it, it does make sense to me that he would have been a fan and been influenced by uh, uh, classic American Westerns. Okay. I do. Yeah. I do want to say, though, I, I like my Westerns darker a bit. This one feels a bit cutesy, you know? Okay. Like, like the whole, uh, and it's cutesy in Seven Samurai as well, like the recruiting of, of this magnificent Seven and some of the training sequences and when the actors are repeating lines from previous scenes. Now we're, now we're four. Now we're five. Now we're seven. Again, I, I don't... And this isn't a terribly, like, people die, blood is shed, but this isn't a terribly violent Western, really, compared to, like, say, the Wild Bunch, like a Sam Peckinpah type of Western, or, of course, a lot of our, our modern Westerns are, are like that. This feels like one that I can see why it's a classic and why it's popular. It's one that you can watch with your father, and you can probably watch as a young kid and, and, and get something out of it. Right, yeah. yeah. It's not as dark and edgy. It's not even as... um interesting in style as the spaghetti westerns i don't think who this is directed by john sturgis yeah sturgis who also yeah. directed the great escape so it makes sense oh, okay. that the same actors are in both films hey here's a stumper who directed the blob Ooh, that's yeah and i'm not gonna look at my cheat sheet again i know who directed chuck russell did the remake but uh off the top of my head i don't remember who directed the okay. original blob you know there's one of the uh dump you with that i don't know either i didn't uh directing i didn't want to cheat i didn't want to cheat in that movie i was all about the blob not about the directing but magnificent <laughs> seven i did i did enjoy it and i was like i <laughs> i enjoy numbers in that sense like the magnificent seven i i know you said you don't like that like now it's five now i i, I kind of like that and then when like when, when when they'd all be there i'd be like okay let's see one two three yeah they're all there all seven are there you know I just remember like, watching the horses go by and counting. Like I was, I found myself doing that. Are all seven in the shot there? Yeah, that, that's what I would do. Yeah, I I the, two the two townspeople were on horses too, so that would. So I'd be like, oh no, I need to be looking for nine horses, not seven horses. So yeah, yeah, I like it when it's. I like when it's framed when it's like the seven of them. Yeah. Are there other movies like that where there's a there's a number of people? Because I because I seem to enjoy these movies where there's a specific yeah. number. There's a movie called Seven, but that's that's not the same. No, Seven is it's not the same. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to mention it because the Dirty Dozen, the Dirty Dozen, as far as the Great Escape, has some other movies which are kind of a similar type of a formula, Hollywood formula for a war film. So the Dirty Dozen was the first thing that came to mind. I'm thinking that I'm sure Tarantino watched this movie, and then he had the Hateful Eight. We have the oh movie. yeah. 
seven here, yeah. so I think the Hateful Eight, that title is probably inspired by this as maybe a, the opposite of the Magnificent Seven. I think probably more people will sit down and eat their popcorn and enjoy the Magnificent Seven than the Hateful Eight, but the Hateful Eight is the type of Western I really like. Okay. But, but I, I took somebody to see it, and they said they would never watch another movie again because it was so uh, vicious. So. <laughs> wow. Harsh. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say about the Magnificent Seven? No, I think that's it. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig. How many are you taking out? 250. 250? Sedgwick Manufacturer, Griffith, I said, Taylor, right. Nimon Haynes Diversions. Which one's a forgery? Uh, the both are. It is the sworn duty of all officers to try to escape. So there will be no escapes from this camp. Oh, my God, they phoned Tom. Hold on to yourself, Bartlett. You're 20 feet short. The hole is right here in the open. The guard is between us and the lights. The Nazis, in their infinite wisdom, and this is apparently a true story, decided to take all of the prisoners of war, American and British and French, who were the best at escaping from prisoner war camps, and put them in one camp, and that's the basis of the Great Escape, where immediately as they arrive, this great ensemble cast of really colorful characters with all of their specialties find ways that they can escape from this prison. And this is, again, many of the same actors. There's a few other actors thrown in there, including a future Academy Award-winning director, uh, Richard Attenborough. And it seems like a lot of it involves the British soldiers being quite methodical and planning out 
using all of their strengths, a way to get out of this prison. And then we have Steve McQueen, clearly the lead in the film, him and his Scottish buddy there, who are just finding very overt ways of trying to escape but they keep being caught and brought back and this is again that kind of like the repetition in uh the magnificent seven where mcqueen keeps being put into like the solitary confinement but he's always allowed to have his his baseball glove and his ball so that he can like bounce it against the wall and that happens several times in the movie i again i'm, I'm not sure how much patience at least the the nazis on film that i've seen in other films would have for this but apparently that's the direction they went here, I'm coming across negative. I like The Great Escape. I like The Magnificent Seven, where I said I really was happy to see, and it was almost a relief with James Colborn and Charles Bronson, because neither of those men had really bad dialects in The Magnificent Seven. But unfortunately, for some reason, somebody had the genius idea of casting James Colborn as a Cockney git. <laughs> Yeah, and his 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 accent is. Oh, no, he was supposed to be Australian. Oh yeah, he's Australian. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's why I I could never tell what it was. That's right, and they kept mentioning he was Australian. It didn't really sound at any point Australian to me. He said bloody and mate a lot. I guess that's maybe Australian, I suppose. And then it was le less bothersome. And, and again, I think overall the role's pretty good for Charles Bronson, and he does have some decent acting beats that he hits in there. But he's playing a Frenchman again. I'm not <laughs> sure why they decided other than to get him into the film because I guess they all go along on the magnificent seven Isn't why is character in this film but they didn't have a, i guess they didn't have a ton of american characters like we had james garner and steve mcqueen and that's basically it Right. Yeah. Well, there's one I, other guy who would come up and talk to Steve McQueen about stuff. But yeah, watching the movie, I'm afraid it's like James Coburn and Charles Bronson are so badass. Like, I'm afraid to criticize their, their accents. I'm afraid they're going to like jump they're out of my screen and punch me in the face. Yeah. They might. <laughs> they, they probably might. would. They probably hung out at the screenings, you know, and someone started chuckling a little bit. Yeah. You know, they walked over, excuse me. Maybe just me trying to be critical or something, but I. Every time he spoke, it was distracting. The sections where he didn't have to speak and he was just doing his actions and his business, that was that was fine. But uh, he opened his mouth. <laughs> every time he opened his mouth, yeah, he's supposed to be Australian, I, I guess. I guess. When they show these movies, when they'll like, I'm sure when they show this movie in Australia, people were probably oh, there's the laughing their head out. I lived in Sydney, Australia for half a year, <laughs> and I, I was told by people in Australia that you're from North America, you will never be able to get an authentic Australian accent. Charles Bronson, the scenes where like he's digging the tunnels, but then he kind of has this arc where he realizes he's very claustrophobic and he's nervous right. about actually escaping and going through the tunnels. I thought there's some like like genuine acting in that performance, which I wouldn't always see from him. Like he coughed, but he was kind of vulnerable in, yeah. in the role. Boy, the Nazis were nice. They were so nice. They were the nice and <laughs> And not only that, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even try to escape from this place. It was like a gated community. I would be like, where are you guys going? I'm hanging out here. I'm riding out to war. Yeah. <laughs> And it was, and it was almost like a comedy in that these people they were just dead set to escape. I think at some point, like that's what at some point it, it's explained that they they are trained to they ha have to be trying to escape twenty four hours a day. So they were hiding in there. There would be like a, 
cart uh, going out with hay. They'd be hiding in the hay. They'd be trying to march out. There was just all, all sorts of shenanigans. And the, the Nazis were like, oh, well, here, get back right in there. They dressed up like Russian lumberjacks at one point or something to try to, <laughs> to, try to leave the camp. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really... I don't know. Maybe it's just a modern sensibility, but just seeing these really, really pleasant Nazis throughout the film didn't make a whole ton of sense. Like, there's a bit of a, a darker edge in the third act here, even though I, I still, they still return to some of the cute stuff with Steve, Steve McQueen and and that. Here, I'm being a little bit hard on it right now, and. Probably if a uh, gun was put to my head, I'd say I'd, I prefer The Magnificent Seven over this one. But it's still an impressive uh, prison film and war film. And it is based on a true story, even though I'm not sure how much of this is true and how much of it is Hollywood. I think it's more Hollywood than true. But it has some impressive stuff. And it, this is not the first time we're going to be talking about a car chase, which is amazing in a film uh, later on here. But there's an iconic motorcycle chase with Steve McQueen, which is just a really cool sequence, kind of mixed in with sequences of once they escape, they don't, they aren't able to get out 250 prisoners as they were hoping to, but a, a few got away, and we see what happens to them in the third act. But I, I again, the sequence that which is amazing is Steve McQueen doing everything in his power once he gets discovered at a border crossing of on this bike trying to outrun his captors and it's it, it's just a that, that that sequence is great there's some terrific action sequences uh this is one where i'd say steve mcqueen was a bit better in this movie than he uh was in the magnificent seven because he he definitely was the lead and he was kind of the cool american but he had some amazing actors i i know last episode we we were kind of hard on james garner talking about twilight but james garner is very good in this film uh, as well yeah i liked um i like the mix of actors i like when they have well, <clears throat> I, I like when they have like british actors and the, the british the uh the british characters had their own way of doing things and they were very uh oh what were the words a little stuffy about it and putting things together and then the americans were like these brash i guess that's that's how uh, everybody saw americans in the late 50s 1960s so it was like the americans were kind of like their brash styles were were uh, combined with the Brits and then Donald Pleasant's character he became friends with James Garner and that yeah. was kind of cool. Like Donald Pleasant cuz I've been watching a lot of his horror movies recently and he, he was a guy who made big choices let's say but here it's kind of nice to see a little bit more of a restrained performance from him. However, spoilers again for the movie there's a point where he goes blind and like the eyes and the facial expressions became a little bit too cartoonish from uh, Pleasance, kind of in uh, the later stages of the film. It's not too much, but it was just something that distracted me a little bit. But I liked in the first two acts, he's, he's a totally different type of character. He, he's the forager uh, in the group, but he's totally different than everybody else. And initially, he's bunkmates with James Garner, who doesn't know what to do with this guy. And then they become really, really good friends uh, as it goes along. The surprise performance for me actually was probably a little bit more famous for being a director or being uh, the old man from Jurassic Park. But Richard Attenborough does quite a nice job. He comes in, he's actually a spy and he's in in real danger but he still feels like he that's part of his his goal he needs to get across the border and and get some information but he he really risks his life through this escape but i think he does quite a good job i might even go so far as to argue that 
he gives the best performance in the film. He won an Oscar for Gandhi, right? Yeah, he won the Oscar for Gandhi, and he directed a, lots of uh, Shadowlands is one. He actually made a movie in Saskatchewan uh, about Grey Owl with Pierce Brosnan. Quite okay. an director, and he could act, and it's, it, it shows in this movie <clears throat> that he could be quite good. I was curious if he's uh, still alive. I looked it up. He passed away in 2014 at age 90. Yeah, he made it to his 90s. You know, and yeah. he worked... He probably worked into his 80s, I think so. Yeah. He played Santa Claus in a remake of Miracle on 34th Street. Right. That was the other kind of acting role there for children of the <clears throat> children of the 90s. I might have seen him in that remake with uh, Mara Wilson, if I recall correctly, was a little girl in that one. Oh, okay. And he says, says he also worked on, he was in the Sam Pebbles, also with uh, Steve McQueen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So they worked together. It seemed like Steve McQueen worked with everybody and some people several times over. Yeah. So anyway, I've been talking a lot. Like, what, 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 what are your thoughts on The Great Escape? Yeah, I did enjoy the film uh, very much. As I said, I like the m- mixture of actors. I like I like when it's like they, you know, there's like a mismatched couple kind of, and then they, they get together, become friends, like the uh, James Garner and Donald Pleasance. I, I appreciate that. I guess we give away the kind of spoilers spoilers we want. But the, the, I didn't at yeah. the top of the show. So, okay, good. Uh, yeah, so the Nazis end up killing like 50 of the, the people who escaped. Uh-huh. And, and everybody everybody in the movie is like, oh. I'm like, well, gee, I'm like, thank God that this they can kind of that this movie can redeem itself a little bit there. Because it's like, well, the Nazis are a lot worse than that. Up, up, up until that point, they were kind of friendly. Yeah. So I was so I was glad at least that that had happened that's a part of her story like these people got out of this impenetrable uh pow camp but died like i I believe that that's a story that they actually got the the rights to tell the story but then they hollywoodized it in many ways and a few people did most of the people did not but some people did i think that james james coburn character was able to escape yeah three according to the film three managed to get away there's that other pair that were on the rowboat okay yeah and they managed to find get onto this ship and i guess that's the extraordinary thing is you're seeing some major movie stars get killed off in the third act of the film so and then you do see the the dark side of finally of uh of the nazis but and i guess in the you know 1963 they couldn't show the extreme violence that a Schindler's List could show or something like that. So maybe oh, that's this is part of- 63. Yeah. I was thinking 1960 before. Yeah. Yeah. 63. Yeah. It was, it was a cool movie. I guess you could see the structure coming. I mean, it's called the great escape. You know, what's going to happen, but it's kind of cool that like all the planning and then, and then the actual yeah. escape and then they're, and then they're all, and then it's, you know, you see all the individual characters, uh, all their own ways of trying to get away. I watched this with as a double feature. We're going to do Papillon on the show. So I watched this with a, an unexpectedly, it was a, a double feature of uh, Steve McQueen uh, obsessed with escaping. There are parallels there. I, I find one of them very Hollywood and cutesy and the other one more brutal. But maybe it's because uh, there's 10 years uh, of cinema between The Great Escape and Papillon. Um, yeah. In 73, they could get away with stuff a little bit more uh, of the reality and the pathos in, in, in some ways than, than they could in the early 60s. Here, here's a, a, a problem I have with it. And maybe, again, maybe I'm being overly critical in this episode. I like all of these movies and I recommend all of them. So, you know, I, this is just me kind of sorting things out a little bit. All of these people die. 
but right. there doesn't seem to be a proper acknowledgement of the tragedy of that. Again, spoilers, like they catch Steve McQueen, he's back in prison and he's headed back to his, and he was he was always given the exact same solitary confinement place in this prison and same guy throws him the ball glove and uh, the ball and he's yeah, back like, to that again and it's just like... He had his own room. And there's kind of no acknowledgement, like there's more acknowledgement of the tragedy when his Scottish friend early in the film has a little bit of a, a, a breakdown and, and decides to run and gets shot down. That's probably properly acknowledged but they don't acknowledge the tragedy of it they kind of go back and leave you on kind of this this cutesy happier note at the end of the film uh which i thought was a, a touch disrespectful to the people who actually died but maybe yeah, that's it, too critical it ends with him in the room again with the baseball glove right like yeah. they let the guy get away with anything i pretty much yeah yeah typical nazis you know they're so forgiving right yeah it was a little bit fuzzy with the history <laughs> <laughs> that felt very Hollywood to me. It felt very, you know, this is our charming movie star, and this is where we started with him, and this is where we're ending with him. And he's very good in it. I don't want to say anything against McQueen. This is script stuff, and this is, you know, yeah. Sturges making some stylistic choices at the time. I, I don't know how much of the Hollywood machine was foreseeing some of this, but, you know, it's a classic. Like, we're talking about some classic films here with this and The Magnificent Seven, but I just want to acknowledge that these are not perfect films. Yeah, especially as years have gone by. I mean, if, I guess... I don't know what people thought of it, thought about how the Nazis were portrayed in 1960, I would imagine. I don't know. But uh, certainly certainly myself looking at it today, I certainly had some issues with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just the fact that the, the Nazis were just allowing them to have free reign of this uh, prison. They were planning out. They're all meeting up. I think, weren't they even having like some little parades and stuff like that? They're even like celebrating yeah. holidays. Right. It was a good old time. Well, hell, hell breaks yeah, they're like they got moonshine going, and everybody's getting drunk and stuff. But like, fortunately, that kind of led to a, a shift into a darker part of the film in that sequence when it's discovered that like what they've been planning. Yeah, it's still it's an entertainment. Again, you could probably watch this movie as a family, and maybe it's a safe introduction to taking a look at World War II. But I, there are I think better war films, and yeah, I, I don't know if it has to be all blood and guts and tragedy all the time. I mean, this is. This is fine for the time and for what it is, but um, oh, if I was oh, well. between the two, I'd choose The Magnificent Seven simply because it doesn't try to tell this really, really important historical story. It is a, it is an entertaining Western, and it serves that purpose. This one yeah. is actually trying to tell us, give us a little bit of uh, history, and it's history through the Hollywood lens, which sometimes is is not that fantastic. I don't know if I'm, I don't want to hurt your career by uh, bashing Hollywood in this way. No, I think I'm okay. Uh, but I will say, as far as influences, I was talking about the, the influences that I saw in the other movies. I saw Shawshank Redemption, where Tim Robbins in Shawshank Redemption. How, how, can, how can you be so obtuse? But he um, he walks out. That's a that's a line from the movie, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I wasn't I wasn't uh, accusing you of being obtuse. Um, no, you, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned that line on uh, on an episode the, the episode I listened to of A Lifetime of Hallmark. So, so Tim Robbins is, you know, he's everybody's seen, uh, everybody's seen Shawshank Redemption, I assume, but he's, yeah, he's yeah. getting the dirt. He's got to get rid of the dirt because he's, yeah. he's banging, making a hole through the wall. So he goes up to, to the, to the prison yard and has to shake it out. So, and in this movie, The Great Escape, they have a little more elaborate way of doing it. They have like this, 
like this clothing that they wear where they where they put the dirt in it and then they pour it out. They like pull a little string that comes out. And it's in their garden too. Like they kind of yeah. drop it in that the garden that they're making. So, but I could see that Frank Darabont would have watched The Great Escape and it probably got part of that idea for uh, when he was adapting The Shawshank Redemption. Here's my next, uh, another Quentin Tarantino reference. I do think Tarantino was heavily influenced by Steve McQueen's films and movies like this. There's a sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is talking about how he was a candidate to play Steve McQueen's role. And we see DiCaprio act act out that early confidence confrontation with the head Nazi and in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So there's a little bit of a kind of a, a reference to The Great Escape in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I enjoyed. And it was kind of interesting to see <clears throat> McQueen's actual take and what DiCaprio did. Okay. Some ways like DiCaprio getting that role at that, if, you know, that movie was happening now, that'd be kind of a DiCaprio type of uh, a role to He'd be about the right age to to uh, to take on that role, and he right. might actually improve it. And on the flip side, if you want to do time travel, how, how cool would it have been for Quentin Tarantino to direct Steve McQueen in a movie? I, he would have loved that. Like you could tell, Steve McQueen died in 1980, and Tarantino. I'm not even sure he was working at the video store at that point, but yeah, I, I'm I'm sure like he's been. If Steve McQueen had lived longer, he would have found some way to give him some great character role in one of his films, like he's done for so many actors uh, over the years. So yeah, that would that would have been amazing because he he likes to work with actors of that vintage. And, yeah, I'm thinking uh, an older Steve McQueen. Yeah. may have been on the lines of like Robert Forster. He might have you know? been able to get Steve McQueen an Academy Award actually, you know, possibly. Because I think that sometimes is Tarantino's goal is to bring these actors from the 60s and 70s back to the forefront and uh, try to do that one one film after another. But yeah, Great Escape I think is a, a good entertainment. Mixed messages on the history. Big cast. The range of performances are quite good to one for me, which is very, very distracting. And I really like James Colburn and it's no, no disrespect to him, but this was probably mm-hmm. the worst I've ever seen him. In a world where everything is left to chance, men and women will gamble on anything. 25 and 20. That's right. He's got him. He's got him. He's $3,000. You are where you are. Women are a universal problem. Can't live with them and can't live without them. Prosperity for everybody. Gut money. There's no limit. No fix. It's that Three River Gambling Man, the Cincinnati Kid. The Cincinnati Kid. The Cincinnati Kid. His luck is a temptation to every woman. I hope you lose. And his luck is a challenge to every gambling man. I don't need Mark cards to beat you, pal. Down the river to New Orleans, where the kid found excitement enough to satisfy even his adventurous spirit. Here he fought his way up to the big time, aided and abetted by his pal, the shooter. You, shooter, man, you've been dealing me cards for an hour. Like hell, I... And finally, to challenge the supremacy of the king of gamblers. My pleasure, lady fingers. The man himself. You've been scared of the kid. Should I be? Hey, kid! He's here! Damn right. Possible straight flush. 
There's always a younger man waiting to take over. $3,000. He's got the jack of diamonds. No. Nothing in. Sure he is. The kid's got him. After the game, I'll be the man. I know. Christian was the girl who really loved the kid. Hey, what the hell are you going to Frenchie movies for anyway? Shooter's wife wanted to go. Melba. Melba. Since when are you hanging with Melba? Melba. Always willing to gamble with someone else's life. Yeah, she's a fun girl. Do you uh, have to cheat at everything? And the Cincinnati kid, lucky at love as well as at guards. Until one night, he pushed his luck too far. See you later. Whoa, the voice of Ray Charles. The Cincinnati kid. I mean the Cincinnati kid. Whoa, whoa, the Cincinnati kid. Whoa, the Cincinnati kid. Yeah, the Cincinnati kid. Okay, I, I honestly had never heard of the Cincinnati kid. In, until it came time to do this it came in a collection of four steve mcqueen movies that i own and this was my first experience with it and this was your first experience with it i feel like i should have known about it given the talent behind the camera norman jewison with the people involved with this film it's the story of uh 1930s new orleans which i always find a great location for films i, I like movies in new orleans and it's about the cincinnati kid with steve mcqueen he's a young stud poker player who travels from one big game to the next and he stops along the way and gets connected to, to various women and he's taking on the legendary champion in this case the legendary champion is the legendary edward g robinson from so many crime films i i reviewed uh key largo where he was kind of the big bad in that film and it comes there's a high stakes poker game and the the cast has Anne margaret it has great Canadian actor Carl Malden and Choosy Welds in this film, uh, Joan Blondell, Rip Torn, a young Rip Torn. However, we reviewed a movie called The Hustler on the Paul Newman Show, and this isn't a criticism of the Cincinnati Kid by any stretch, but did you notice that this was very much the formula of The Hustler as you were watching? Yes, I did. In fact, I wrote down The Hustler because, uh, yes, yeah. it was similar to that. Yeah, just a, a stud poker player instead of a pool player. And Malden's this guy, he, he kind of uh, arranges the game and he's the dealer, but he's got some financial problems at which Rip Torn exploits. And Rip Torn's a gambler and he's gambling on the Cincinnati kid to win. So he wants Carl Malden to fix the game. And, Wait, that's uh, and Rip, that, kid, that was Rip Torn from the Larry Sanders show? Yeah, young, young Rip Torn. I had no idea that was him. I think I did see his name in, in the credits, and I just, just just figured I didn't see him. I didn't I didn't realize that was him. He reminded me of the George C. Scott character from The Hustler, and I, I have some criticisms of it, but it's a very entertaining movie, and it kind of had me early on. Terrific music. Like, sometimes the musical sequences in the movie can kind of stop the film. It's like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. But when it's, like, the, the music of New Orleans, somehow it has this, this resonance to it. There's this... Yeah. 
that woman at the piano who looked as authentic as as they as they come uh, just delivers this this beautiful number in there. Like you you mentioned uh, earlier with Norman Jewison, and he directed a lot of musicals, and I mm-hmm. I think he kind of used that effectively here without this movie being a musical necessarily he wanted it to be about new orleans as well as uh this this poker game so so what's your overall uh, thought about the cincinnati kid yeah as i as you had said it was similar to the hustler in a sense it was like this young kid i think they called it a kid in this this this, this movie as well he was the kid up against uh edward g robinson which that was interesting for me seeing edward g robinson this was a i guess this must have been late in the game for him i had not seen movies like public enemies i believe he's in some movies like that um I may be wrong on that, but I know he was in a lot of gangster movies, which I've not seen. I remember his his uh, caricature in the the uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, like yeah, see, yeah, it's curtains for you. So that's kind of like my uh, my history of Edward, Edward uh, G. Robinson. I believe he's also in Ten Commandments. So so now he's in a movie. It kind of reminds me of Orson Welles in Touch of Evil, where it's like it's an older Orson Welles, a little older. He he was you know he lived longer than that, but there were a lot a lot comments like well your your time is past now and there was a lot of a lot of comments to Edward G. Robinson's character in this movie like well you're getting old there was the woman who is the dealer who keeps kind of like nudging him and she's like you know uh, one of our friends your age has died that's you're Lady Fingers yeah. Joan Blondell okay yeah. you're getting old yeah so um but he, he was great she got a Golden Globe nomination for the performance. It well, didn't get Oscar nominations or anything. It was cool the way they shot, like the way the, the way the camera moved. I like that. I liked. I re- <laughs> I really enjoyed Carl Malden's cheating wife, and he was like, "She's cheating at solitaire," and he's like, "What do you stop cheating at solitaire? You're only cheating yourself." And then she she even like one ups it, and she starts cheating at a puzzle. Like she's like she's trying to pound a piece into a puzzle. She's cheating. Yeah. I, I love that. I think I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. That there was a scene a woman cheating because I so I so enjoy the upping the stakes. She's it's not she's cheating at solitaire. Now she's cheating at a puzzle. <laughs> like well, what's well, what's higher? Cheats. Spoilers for the movie. It's foreshadowing yeah. that she's going to cheat on him, which uh, she does. So. I don't know if we want to get to this part of it, too. During this really long poker battle, which starts off with several people and they get knocked off one at a time, some of them very fast. But then for days of this thing, it's it's basically down to Edward G. Robinson and Steve McQueen. And they take like a, a break to sleep or whatever. And Anne-Margaret's already tried to make the moves on Steve McQueen and he's resisted it. And he has this really nice girlfriend who's uh, Tuesday Weld plays characters named Christian. I don't know if that's by mistake or, 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 or intentional or not, but anyway, really, uh, really sweet girl kind of falling for the wrong guy. Again, the hustler sounds, sounds familiar, just a little bit of a different take on it. Here's perhaps where you may lose some sympathy for the Cincinnati kid. Late in the film, during this break, uh, overnight break or whatever, he actually gives in to Anne-Margaret for no other reason than to create a little bit of a crisis, and they sleep together, and of course, then his really nice country girlfriend happens to walk in right after this has happened. And I'm not quite sure why, if he was able to resist her before, why he, he went through with it at that point. I had a few theories, about how he could use that to try to get Carl Malden to stop cheating on his behalf. But 
I, I don't know if we're supposed to, then how are we supposed to respect this guy? And also there doesn't seem to be any consequences for this due to the, the, the last shot of the film, because this poor girl just forgives him right away and just runs, runs back to him. And I think it's yeah. just kind of a, a limited look at the female characters, even Anne Margaret, who's a movie star, but I think she could act. It's not much of a character for her though, more mm-hmm. like a type. Like she plays it well, but anyway, so that's not to moralize it, but like, how are we, how are we supposed to like the guy in the last part of the film? If he, if he makes that, that choice, makes that decision to cheat on his girlfriend. Yeah. It's morally dubious. Yeah. I thought it was lame at the end as well. I just, just, it, it was so quick. I just kind of forgave it, but yeah, there's the last shot of the movie where his girlfriend just comes and hugs him and all his forgiven it's very quick yeah a little bit a little bit like a a tacked on tacked on ending there it's like oh she's very forgiving yeah it just doesn't seem i think she would run home like we have a sequence in her like the the farm she grew up with her family and we we see steve mcqueen kind of win the the skeptical parents over with uh, some card tricks they know something like that yeah, uh, yeah. And was, that felt like a little bit filler i suppose but it was oh. charming nonetheless. but I, I could see her running home to her mom after that happened not waiting for him out for hours outside of this building so that she can run into his arms after after this uh this poker match has happened there, there's some real like it again like poker is a thing where is people sitting at a table playing cards but junison does a good job of making it quite suspenseful and quite dramatic Similar to The Hustler in some ways. I didn't seem to mind the fact that it's, you know, it, it kind of rips off The Hustler. But I I, I seemed to, like, it was entertaining enough. Uh, this was kind of the, the surprise for me. So maybe I'm being a little bit kinder because nobody has heard of it or seen it than I am to The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven. But I flaws and all, I seem to have a better time with this one than 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 with those other two. Oh, I also enjoyed uh, Cab Calloway. Yeah, that's right. The movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, I know, uh, I know Cab Calloway from The Blues Brothers. Is probably the only movie I've ever ever seen him in. So it was it was uh, cool to see him in this movie. It was a major role he had. He did have kind of a New Orleans spirit. New, there's there's something very unique about New Orleans. There is. I mean, it, it's great for crime thrillers, but it was good for for a film like this. And mm-hmm. right. I think, like, I actually, what I didn't know, I thought, well, maybe it's set in Cincinnati because it's called the Cincinnati Kid. But interestingly enough, like the whole thing takes place in New Orleans. And I was impressed. Very well directed, well acted. This is definitely Steve McQueen's the star of the film. We have all of his uh, movie star charisma. The character is flawed. And I didn't really see a consequence for this separate action he does later in the film. There are consequences for other stuff that he does, much like Paul Newman's consequences in The Hustler. I just thought the ending of The Hustler was much better. We have kind of the, the pathos of what happens to Paul Newman and then he walks out of the pool hall and life carries on here we get to see you know the guy gets the nice girlfriend in the end and walks off he you know his pride has been hurt but that's as far as we go
Detective Lieutenant Frank Bullard. Some other kind of cop. Pity the guy he works for. Lieutenant, don't try to evade the responsibility. In your parlance, you blew it. What the hell is going on here? A high-speed pursuit? Two men are killed? An officer in the hospital? A witness almost murdered? Captain Baker would like to have a word with you. Now listen to me, Lieutenant. All right, nail him. I want him written off. Do you let anything reach you? I mean, really reach you? Or are you so used to it by now that nothing really touches you? You're living in a sewer, Frank. Day after day. With you, living with violence is a way of life. Living with violence and death. Frank Bullet swinging, you know he's heading for a crash with that wall of official disapproval. But when some rare Chicago blood starts spilling in San Francisco, they hand Bullet the mop. Now, what went wrong, Lieutenant? Who else knew where he was? What? Who else knew where he was? What have you been implying? Well, they knew where to look for him and they used your name to get in. Are you suggesting I disclosed his whereabouts? If you believe what you want. You work your side of the street and I'll work mine. I started with Bullet. I hadn't seen Bullet. I had seen scenes from Bullet. I uh, saw it. I had I had not seen it before, and it is quite a remarkable action film. And I think if if I was to point out of these six, the one that would be kind of like the Steve McQueen movie, it would be Bullet. That doesn't mean that it's perfect or it doesn't have problems. It has some problems, but Bullet is. When I watched, it, I was like, I get the appeal of Steve McQueen probably more than than any movie I had seen before with him. Um, he's a San Francisco police lieutenant and he's asked by this this rich DA in San Francisco uh, I don't know if he's rich but he's a very prominent DA to look after this witness against the mob and uh, the Chicago mobster and this mobster is supposed to turn evidence against the organization and what happens is tragically there's a little bit of a double cross that happens and Steve McQueen's partner gets shot and then later killed in the process and then Bullet makes it his mission to figure out what's happening here because it looks like the witness as well as his partner have been killed and the DA is coming down hard on on Bullet for not doing his job. There's all this great stuff that happens. It's a terrific action movie. Some things are a bit convoluted as action movies are, but the centerpiece of this movie is one of the most amazing car chases that anybody has ever seen in the streets of San Francisco and to the outskirts of San Francisco. And that is worth your money alone. So I'm a big fan of Bullet. I'm quite enthusiastic about it, even though the material here isn't necessarily as important as a movie as The Great Escape. I found as a genre film, it was on point and I think action fans loved it then and I think they will love it now. But I'm happy to hear a different opinion. No, I agree. It was uh, the titles were great. Starts uh, starts with that. It was very 
very stylized. And I had not seen this movie either. And I had certainly heard of those. I had heard of the iconic car chase scenes. Yeah, they were they were great. The, the, just the idea of like driving, having a car chase in San Francisco and just the cars like flipping around, you know, just flying over those hills. Just driving in San Francisco has got to be kind of scary. Uh, so <laughs> having a car chase is really quite intense. But yeah, it was very cool. Uh, Robert Robert Vaughn is uh, there again. Must yeah. have been like a buddy of Steve McQueen. Yeah, and, so um, I mean, yeah. yeah, A Towering Inferno, Magnificent Seven. I, I, I feel like I'm missing one that he was in with McQueen. But... This movie also, uh, Robert Duvall was in yeah. Bullet. Yeah, he was a the, the cab uh, driver. Yeah. Cab driver. Duvall has had such a long career. And going back to playing Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, he would just show up in all of these, these films. And I guess, yeah, this is pre-Godfather, so... He wasn't, he was doing a lot of television acting at the time, and he wasn't quite the Robert Duvall that we know now at the time. Because initially, I, I, again, it has such a 70s crime vibe to it, and yeah. the performance and the action, but it was a late 60s film. So, again, he was, Duvall was just trying to get work, and I, I guess, at the time. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it, and he has a, a couple of really good scenes. Well, it was on The Verge. It was a 1968, so it was, uh, yeah, headed into the 70s. Yeah, it was very cool, and I enjoyed the movie. Uh, this was one of the the first ones I, I believe I watched also of the Steve McQueen movies. So I watched this a few weeks ago. So some of the specifics haven't stuck with me as some of the other ones, which I guess, as I say, it was just a very, it was a fun movie to watch. It was very engrossing. Quite suspenseful. Uh, lots of style. Again, the word cool is thrown around a lot, but like, this is a cool movie. If you like, like the I, again, I, I not to keep mentioning Tarantino, but I think Tarantino was very influenced by this film, particularly Death Proof. I think is has has some references to Bullet. I, I did an episode early on on Cars, and that's where I reviewed Death Proof and a few other films. This would have worked really well in that Cars episode because yeah, the, it would definitely. The Cars had character, but the, there's a lot to like. You know, there's a very suspenseful sequence in the climax at the San Francisco airport, and I don't mm-hmm. know if you got this a bit like it. The way it resolves is quite different, but uh, we have McQueen chasing the main villain late in the film, and it reminded me, on, on the tarmac, it reminded me of the climax of the movie Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, with uh, the chase between uh, Pacino and De Niro. And I, I feel like, again, Michael Mann saw the film, and intentionally or unintentionally, the uh, the approach to that sequence at the airport in, in LA in that film was influenced by Bullet. I think Bullet influenced a lot a lot of cinema. Yeah. Action and crime films for sure. I am really, really singing its praises. I'll say a couple of negative things about it and feel free to jump in and say you're full of it, Dubray. Okay. Jacqueline Bassett, very attractive woman, is in here and plays Bullet's girlfriend. I don't think she has a lot to do in the film. And her kind of her the high point of her performance is a scene where she gives a speech to McQueen about how he lives in a world of violence. Again, I think there's something like that that's in the movie Heat as well. That again, where I get the Michael Man okay. film vibe here. She delivers it okay, but again, she's pretty not not. I don't think she gives a great performance, but I also think she's not given much to do other than to be Steve McQueen's girlfriend. They spend a lot of time with that date early in the film, which is just before everything goes wrong with uh, guarding this this key witness. I, I feel like that stuff would be cut out of a movie now. There's, again, this is another one. There's a musical sequence in there, uh, which adds to the romance of it. And that, that's fine. But I, again, she's just the girlfriend role. So this is not really a, a film 
film, and some of these films are just not great films for female actors. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I wasn't a big fan of uh, Robert Vaughn in this film. I thought he was he was just there to be difficult for Steve McQueen. You know, I kept thinking something like, okay, we're, we're going to get a little bit more of a layer to this, but he's in on it, or he's somehow connected to the Chicago mob, or he's a corrupt guy or something like that. But no, he, his character isn't even that interesting. Yeah, there's something I, I didn't know that Robert Vaughn had such a film career. I thought he was more of a TV actor. Yeah, me too. Yeah, he's been showing up in all the 60s and 70s stuff that, that we've been watching lately. So Yeah, we've seen him in three movies and like like famous movies. I thought he was just known from like the man from Uncle and I remember he was on the A team in the, the last season of that. I th- I always kind of thought my association with Robert Vaughn was he was kind of like a almost like a cheesy TV actor. Yeah. So, so he, he still so to me he still kind of gives off that vibe a little bit. It's it's more he has the look more style than substance. Right. If, if you were to say Towering Inferno, Magnificent Seven, and Bullet, which which performance was his best? Towering Inferno, Magnificent Seven, and Bullet. I think he was good in Magnificent Seven. Yeah. I think he I think he had a good character. Like that cowardly yeah. aspect to him, and where he felt like yeah. he towards the end he needed to prove himself because in the early battles he kind of hides in the corner and doesn't do anything i thought he did a de- like it wasn't amazing but he did a decent job of playing that versus in the other films i felt he his character served a purpose but right. and, and this again this one probably would even though uh of the films it's this is probably of the three my favorite of the three uh films but i thought he was weakest in bullet it felt like uh, an extended version of like that the cliche of the police captain you're off the case <laughs> yeah which in this case was norman fell yeah mr roper uh, <laughs> I was. I wrote a note about uh, McQueen's performance that he was very stoic in Bullet, and there were a lot of silent scenes where he didn't have any, any I, words. I I appreciated the silences. It built up the suspense. Again, I don't think a movie released in 2020 would have that. An action movie has to be action nonstop, Michael Bay, quick cuts, and all of that. Here's an action movie that takes its time to build up the atmosphere and the suspense. And doesn't race to like the climax of the scene, and it, it does build up to that very satisfying car chase, which is later in the film. Like you, you have to be patient to to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'm a big fan of Bullet. Thank you for having this as part of part of our six here because this one impressed me quite a bit. I'm, I'm probably being a little bit nicer to this one for some reason. I just think it's it's harder to I and I say this about comedy and I say this about horror. It's very difficult to create a really solid action movie and mm-hmm. that's what was done with bullet so I, I would recommend it lots of people haven't i'm sure tons of people haven't seen the movie i would highly recommend seeing bullet come get your arc tom a little bit to your right jimmy hold up let me know when you're in mike yeah bye ready to roll ready here we go. First team. All right, please. Roll cameras. Action. After five years as an international bestseller, it comes to the screen. Unquestionably, the greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. Steve McQueen. Dustin Hoffman. Happy on. 
keep me alive until we land in Guyana. And I'll underwrite any escape you care to arrange. Done. Welcome to the penal colony of French Guiana. Whose prisoners you are. Get moving! And from which there is no escape. How much would it cost? 3,000 in advance, which you pay to me, and I pay to Pascal, who provides everything. You double-cross me, I'll kill you. How much do you charge to send this one as far as Panama? Guard, come here a minute. Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman. Two men with nothing in common but a will to live. And a place to die. It's up to you. You are just as much dead as you are alive. Make no pretense at rehabilitation here. We're not priests, we're processors. A meatpacker processes live animals into edible ones. We process dangerous men into harmless ones. This we accomplished by breaking you. What do you think? Did he make it or didn't he? Oh, I'd say his chances are very poor, wouldn't you? Is that all you've got to say? What do you expect me to say? That man risked his life to save mine. <laughs> the ordeals of prison. I want that name and I want it now. Then you'll die. The dreams of freedom. The dangers of escape. Steve McQueen. Dustin Hoffman. Papillon. The greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. So 1973, Papillon. My side story about this is some of my Irish relatives were living in Jamaica when they filmed this in the in the early 70s there. And so would always tell me that Steve McQueen had made a movie where they were living. And I knew about this movie. Like somebody actually debated with me once upon a time that Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen never worked together in a movie. I said, no, there's this movie. And for some reason, I've had the hardest time finding it until I found this four movie Steve McQueen collection on Amazon and was able to buy it strictly for this podcast and for years I've been wanting to see this movie and for me it didn't disappoint this is about true story again I don't know how Hollywood it is about uh, French prisoners that were uh, taken to the extreme prison which is basically three islands together they do their time and then they become colonialists and that's basically what, what their future is and Papillon is uh, played by Steve McQueen and he's determined from beginning to end as you mentioned earlier like in Great Escape to mm -hmm. escape from it's impossible to escape from prison 
prison. And he is joined in kind of, again, I, I agree this is a very strange pairing that somehow works because I don't get the sense that Steve McQueen was, he was a movie star, but he wasn't really much of a method actor. And we're at the height of Dustin Hoffman being a method actor. Hoffman plays Louis Dega, who is basically a, a corporate criminal. And he, he built people out of these, I guess they were kind of war bonds or something. And But he, he still has access to all of this money, which can be used to get better jobs in the prison and to bribe people for different escape plans. But he's thick glasses and he's this shrimpy little thing with all of these like career criminals and he needs protection and Steve McQueen wants access to the money initially uh, he offers to protect Hoffman Hoffman initially says no and then a few things happen including like the guy next to him gets murdered in the night he's like uh, I probably do need protection and this unusual friendship kind of develops and my initial notes were Steve McQueen is playing himself Dustin Hoffman is playing a character right. but I say this is the most Steve McQueen was stretched he's very good in the sound pebbles when you get a chance to see that movie but this is the most that he is stretched in a role and I think it, it shows the range I don't know if the, the intention was we're gonna get Steve McQueen an Academy Award with this film or not it didn't work but I, I, I think this movie is Steve McQueen's film and Hoffman does a great job of kind of being the secondary character but Hoffman dis dis disappears for long chunks of time in the film uh, and then then he comes back sometimes improbably uh, his character comes back and survives all kinds of uh, amazing things here so so I I really really liked it it was worth the wait uh, I like the whole journey I like that McQueen was stretched and there's some brutal realistic scenes like this is uh, this is again closer to a Shawshank type of uh, prison movie than The Great Escape McQueen's on the ground eating bugs some bits are, are really really tough to watch uh, which I think in effective prison film has so I'm talking a lot I, I, I'm a fan but I want to hear your opinion of uh, Papillon yeah I was looking at uh, Justin Hoffman's filmography here to see where this this was so it's little it's well this is after well obviously after after The Graduate but after Midnight Cowboy after Little Big Man Straw Dogs Alfredo yeah. Alfredo which I've never heard of and then uh, Papillon I don't know if Papillon is right before Lenny interesting really interesting uh, it's kind of the movies. height of people recognizing what well he'd already been up for a few Academy Awards so this or a couple at this point and and so he was in a like like Pacino and De Niro like he's in a, he in a, uh, was an established method actor at this point in, in in cinema but this is a different role for him I mean playing kind of like a this outsider kind of awkward guy I don't think that was that difficult for him but this type of film this wasn't kind of a New York based film or an ironic comedy or anything like that this was uh, that's amazing uh, that he he went from this to Lenny yeah I mean yeah. it showed the range of roles he was given at that time. Here's because I I picked on mercilessly I would say I picked on James Colburn in uh, The Great Escape for his Australian accent, which at times I thought was an attempt at a Cockney accent. It, it, I, I do have to acknowledge that all of the French characters here are American, and there's no real attempt for anybody to appear French, it, other than exterior and costume. But this is a French story done by Americans. There's the odd British actor in there, but it's McQueen's using 
using his own voice and Hoffman's using his own voice. It must have been a decision at some point not to do like they have the movie stars, they have the actors, but they're they're not going to like do this as uh, as French actors, which happens yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah, that happened. A movie I really enjoyed, which is Amadeus, but that's a very American yeah. movie where people should not be sounding yeah. like American. Well, Abraham won the Oscar and he had a New York accent through uh, his performances Salieri's. But as yeah. far as uh, beyond, I actually saw this is one of the movies. Uh, this played on cable when I was a kid, and I watched this with my mom many many years ago. So I had seen Papillon, and it stuck with me uh, because I always remembered it as a real example of determination. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Steve McQueen's character, well, Papillon, uh, Papillon is just bullheaded about escaping. He was like to the to the very end of the movie, where Justin Hoffman's character is just kind of given up at that point. He's happy living on their now at this point they're exiled to like a rocky island. Papillon yeah. still wants to escape. I would say that rocky island, like the the prison that they're in initially, and there's all this talk about you don't want to be sent to that island. That island's wonderful though. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's the isolation, but there's actually some people, you're free to wander around because there really is apparently no way to escape. And like, you just have to watch that you don't go into the wrong person's yard or else they'll get really mad at you. But you're free to raise animals and you're eating well and the weather's beautiful, but it's just part of the thing that McQueen just needs his freedom. And like, it's, it's, it's beautifully done, but at points you're just like, this guy has absolutely lost his mind to, yeah. to, to do what he does. Like at, at many points throughout the film, but particularly uh, at this point. Yeah, I thought the, the scenes of solitary confinement were quite gripping. Way different than they the were, great game. Oh yeah. Yeah, he didn't get a baseball glove in this one. He was having a rough time. Yeah, yeah his his uh, loyalty to the Justin Hoffman character, so they were they just like, they just turned off all the lights. And there was long stretches of silence in this. There was a romance in this with, uh, with, with Papillon where not a word was spoken. It was a long silence. I mean, there was obviously music and things. I mean, like there, there wasn't any dialogue for a long period of time. That sequence, a couple things about that sequence. He does spoilers that they do manage a bit of an escape. And then he ends up through, again, I'm not quite sure because he's being chased and almost killed. And then he kind of lands on this perfect island with these incredibly understanding villagers. And he looks like his life there is pretty good. I, I, I just don't understand why he decides to leave because that leads to more imprisonment more and more problems for him because of like, if he's stuck with this, this romance, even though they didn't speak the same language and he seemed to get along with everybody there, that didn't make a whole ton of sense. It also didn't make a ton of sense how he got there, how he got from being chased in the jungle and then jumping into the water to ending up in this like great situation. I don't know. I haven't seen the, this one has actually been remade as well. Remy Malek and I forget who the other actor is. I haven't seen the remake. It's the actor I, from uh, Sons of Anarchy, Charlie Hunan or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. He's the other actor in there. Okay. I, I don't know how they handle that sequence in the remake. I, I don't think that that would be handled the way it was in 1973 now. Because it's a bit of a, I mean, I, I don't know if, if it's a fair representation of the people that would be living on that island or if it kind of goes into like, you know, the some of the stereotypes of uh, of, of villagers and in indigenous people are around the world. Yeah, I'd be curious to see the remake 
I wasn't interested before, but now, now I'm kind of curious. But yeah, Papillon is uh, definitely a movie to see. I will say one slight slight criticism, that he goes through the this rigorous pro- uh, process of being in solitary confinement, and it, it ages him. Like, there's a scene where, like, in the, yeah. his early days, he looks out, he's like, how, and then this, this old guy says, how do I look? And he says, oh, you look good. And the guy, I guess he's, he dies. And then, like, after a year, whatever, Steve McQueen's asking the same question, how do I look? Chris. Steve McQueen looks really run down. I think his hair is gray and all that. And then once he gets out of solitary, he goes back to the regular prison. He's not like his hair that like gets darkened again. I guess he gets that just for men uh, hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, hair uh, dye, and he's he's look he's looking great again. So okay, I was I, happy he's looking good again. In, in fairness, I I do think <laughs> some of it was like dust and soot and stuff was in his hair, and it was like okay. that. It was that gray, and then so maybe his hair didn't grade that much because it had been six months. Like he was That's not nice. the same person. Maybe more than six. He was six months in the dark at least. You know, which really affected him. My criticism along those lines because he does age, and then he like he's an old person later in the film. I, I thought he had aged quite a bit. Dustin Hoffman didn't look like he'd aged that much. Okay. Yeah. The film, like he he was basically the same. Maybe a little bit of subtle makeup there, but like Steve McQueen had you know some pretty uh, pretty strong makeup in in that yeah. part. Papillon has its place in their early seventies, and it, it it it's a movie like Robert Altman's Nashville that I had to wait a long time to finally see, and I I'd say the uh, the wait was worth it for Papillon. So very impressed. I'm going to tell you a story. She was engaged to him. And she flew to the UK to make a film with him. I broke off her engagement with him and married him. Then they moved to Los Angeles. And the three of them. I've been inseparable. <laughs> really? What's up? Jay loves Sharon. That's what's up. And he knows. As sure as God made little green apples. That one of these days that Polish prick's gonna fuck things up. And when he does, Jay's gonna be there. Huh? One thing's for sure. Yeah? What's that? Sharon absolutely has a type. Cute, short, talented guys who look like 12-year-old boys. Yeah. I never stood a chance. Okay, Kurt Fitzpatrick of uh, Lifetime of Hallmark. Please, folks, uh, check it out. And I'm going to keep listening, and I'm looking forward to being on the show. A little bit intimidated. As some some of my guests have said they they get a little bit nervous or intimidated to be on this show. But listening to it and, and getting the structure of your show there, I mean, you, you you dig deep into these Lifetime or Hallmark movies. So I, I'm looking forward to the challenge of doing it. It's quite a different thing than than this show, for sure. So Yeah, we look forward to having you on the show. I, I told the guys, and so they're uh, anticipating your arrival. We just yeah. have to... 
Yeah, perfect. Well, hopefully, I, yeah. hopefully I'm a, a plus uh, on the show there. So that's that's my goal there. I think it will be. I, I hope so. And again, thank you for, for doing this. Starting off with the blob. How many points did you give the blob? Six. How many points for the Magnificent Seven? Eleven. How many points for the Great Escape? Eleven. And the Cincinnati Kid? Ten. You're spreading them out nicely. Bullet? Eleven. And, and, and Papillon Papi- Kid? Eleven. It's eleven as well. I I did. I just okay. I enjoyed uh, these movies on on a yeah. you know kind of a, a generally an equal level for for different reasons. But you know for yeah. some for sentimental reasons also like Papillon, but and also the filmmaking every everything we we discussed makes sense. I I didn't. I, I do try to often spread them out. Uh, my my points aren't as as spread out as as yours. But I think we're most of the way along along here. We're in similar places here. So I don't think there'll be a big fight over this. I gave the blob five points. Again, I, I like it, but it, I just feel like, unfortunately, it's matched up against some heavy hitters here. Classics in in many ways, or ones that should be classics. Uh, I did give The Magnificent Seven ten points. It's entertaining. Again, not really in the realms of my favorite Western, but I think you could do uh, worse out there. The Great Escape, I was fighting the movie a lot more than I expected to. Uh, I only gave it eight points. So then a little bit of a discrepancy mm. not much there. The Cincinnati Kid was the, the surprise for me. I, I had a lot of fun with it. And I ended up giving it 11 points. And I also gave Bullet 11 points. I think between the two, I maybe like Bullet a little bit more. But I, I, I really enjoyed both of them. But for me, Papillon was one I've sought out for years. And it was worth the wait. And I gave it 15 points. Oh, wow. Okay. I think it's a little bit more down to earth, a little bit less Hollywood, a little bit more brutal in some ways than the... Uh, than the other films. Bullet's pretty brutal, but it's still was within the realms of kind of that action film genre. But Papillon, I, I I felt like I had been through the hell that Papillon had been through by the end of the film. So it had a, a little bit of a greater impact on me. So where that leaves things is probably because of my inflated points to Papillon, it got the most points with 26. Then mm-hmm. second was Bullet with 22. Tie for third with Magnificent Seven and the Cincinnati Kid with 21 points. The Great Escape got 19 points sadly and i feel like we're picking on a small fry here but the the blob ended up with 11 points yeah well i'll say this for the blob out of all the titles here the the blob wins it's a great title and it's exactly what it is unfortunately yeah unfortunately the blob got thrown in here we were going to do the thomas crown affair and this is not the reason why we did the blob but there was we did have a, a fear that these would all be you know, ranging from very good to great movies, that would be very difficult. So, but <laughs> the blob. I, I, get... In some ways, I like that though because it's a little bit unpredictable. I mean, I had yeah. I had an episode where uh, Julie Taymor's Titus, which is an excellent film, you know, the uh, uh, version of Titus Andronicus with Anthony Hopkins, actually got the lowest number of points and was a movie I had to get rid of. So I've had the odd thing with Robert Altman's. A Prairie Home Companion was another one that had to leave my movie shelf. Occasionally that happens when they're all really terrific movies here. So The Blob, not as terrific as the other five, I would suggest. But for what it is, not too bad. So I don't want to pick on it too much. But this is a little bit of a tricky one in some ways because The Blob is not physically on my movie shelf. It was through streaming and digital means that I saw it. But there's something I have to do with The Blob, which you can come up with. 
I had a similar type of dilemma with my uh, Studio Ghibli show because all of those were digital copies. And so the, th the three women that were my uh, guests on that one, I, I was given uh, like two two options as far as they treated more like punishment. They called it a punishment. Either I had to sing, record myself singing, doing this impression of this one character from Ponyo uh, going ham or watching Ponyo again, uh, but watching it with a, a small child to see if I appreciate the movie more through the eyes of a, a child okay. as opposed to a some adult. So that's how they solved that. I'm not sure with the blob what you'd like me to do about it. They made you do that. Wow, that's uh, that's arduous. No, I, I was going to keep it in mind, keep in line with the uh, you know the, the um, elimination of the blob. Yeah, you definitely should make some Jello and freeze it, and that will so you you create your own little blob <laughs> and <laughs> then the and then destroy it. I'll send it to the Arctic. Uh, yes, I'll get the I'll get the Canadian military to send it to the Arctic. You could put it outside. You're in the Saskatchewan. Well, we are in Saskatchewan. That's true. Just put it outside. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll it's be a Canadian <laughs> version of the blob. <laughs> It might wake up in the summer. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But, you know, look, we, 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 we have to get to the summer first. This has been a rough year. I make the jello and I set it out on, on, on my balcony here for the winter. I think that's, you know, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And the yeah. way 2020 has gone with everything, I think the idea that the blob will wake up in the summer is beautiful optimism. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> dream come true, really. It really is. I like yeah. that thought. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, with uh, a lifetime of Hallmark, I also want to mention, as I always do, rank and review uh, Larry Parsons' genre-based show. I'd, I'd like to get the two of you together. I think you'd, uh, you'd you'd enjoy being on his show as well. He takes oh, yeah. movies and he and he reviews them, and then he ranks them one to six. You get a prize if you are six for six with his list. You also get a prize, maybe a less glamorous prize if you go zero for six if you enjoy doing this movie review uh podcasting thing and it seems like you do then uh maybe yeah. i should uh, connect the two of you there so yeah that sounds good oh i should also mention since this show will probably air in 2021 i'm going to be doing i'm going to be doing a show with a theater festival called the rogue festival it's uh out of fresno california but it's going to be online i'm going to do a show online and they're going to be doing i have a storytelling show it's a very amusing show called very amusing it's a uh, hooray for speech therapy and I'm, I'm updating it so it's hooray for speech therapy 2021 yeah it's going to be uh, an updated version of that so that's going to play in early march so if you check out kurtfitzpatrick.com k instead of c with with, yeah. with the, the first name and so that i should have the information on there or you could also check out rogue festival uh online and i'm predicting this uh, episode will drop in january of 2021 so uh, plenty of time before march to be able to check that out please keep supporting film and theater artists and you know in whatever way you know watching digital theater and remote theater and keep going to the movie 